Hi! Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, Leah Hextall breaks down Game 4 of the Stanley Cup Final. It's a best of three. Does she still think the Blues are going to win? We'll also head to Verdon to talk to a retired baseball-slash-softball lump just inducted into the Manitoba Baseball Hall of Fame. A great story, that is. And a preview of the Manitoba High School's Provincial Track and Field Championship, which begins Thursday. That's on the podcast. St. Louis Blues even up to Stanley Cup Final last night, so you know what that means. <sighs> yeah, Gloria. Series shifts back to Boston now, and joining me to break down the final after four games is Leah Hextall, our hockey expert here on 680 CGOB. Now, normally we do this on Mondays, but figured it just made more sense to do it today after game four instead of during game four. Leah, we once again saw the St. Louis Blues in a spot where they needed to win. They get it done with their backs against the wall. They've just been so good in these situations, really since they hit rock bottom in January. They're at their best when the backs are against the wall, yes, as I think any probably team is like that when you get this far within the playoffs. But one thing is Jordan Bingington is at his best when he loses because he is the king of the bounce back game. And I believe now he's improved to 12 and two or 13 and two after he loses. And he just came out and had another strong performance after obviously being pulled for the first time in his very young career in game three. But I was really impressed with the St. Louis blues. And the fact of the matter is we're starting to see the blues Christian do what they do. And that's imposed their will. And that comes in the format of injuries that are now against the Boston Bruins, which could really start playing into this series as we head into game five. So Matt Grizzlick is still out after the concussion he suffered with the hit from Oscar Sundquist. Zidane Chara took a puck to the mouth. It was just a bloody mess. He might not play in game five. Saw literally, a, saw, literally a bloody mess. Yeah. <laughs> I saw reports today that they might look at going seven defensemen if that Chara, Chara can't play. How much does that affect their chances? Well, it's definitely going to play into it. And it's really interesting, this idea that Bruce Cassidy came out and mentioned that he may play seven defensemen because you have to replace Zidane Chara, And Chara is one of those players that you really can't replace. And I think more than anything, especially on the back end in the playoffs, you need your defensemen, you need your best defenseman to be out there. Not only is he one of their top minute guy along with Tori Krug, I mean, it's the minutes that he plays playing in all situations. I mean, think what he does on that power play with that slap shot from up top, quarterbacking the play his defensive play as well. So Cassidy was mentioning the fact that playing seven defensemen, they're not necessarily looking for a defenseman to step into Zidane Ochara's role and play all of those, but he may dress a couple extra defensemen just to play situationally. So there might be, you know, one defenseman that, hey, he can fill in that void on the power play, and then we're going to put this other guy out here to eat up Chara's minutes when it comes to five-on-five five because they don't necessarily have that one overall defenseman in their depth that can come in, and you're not going to replace Chara, but as I mentioned, just eat up those minutes in one way. So it'll be very interesting to see what they end up do, doing. And I might screw up this name because I, I don't really know this young defenseman, but Earl and I was talking to one of my friends in Boston just because I still know a few people down there from working there. And they mentioned that Connor Clifton and him played very well together in Providence. So I wonder if that's going to be an option for Cassidy just because there's some familiarity. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have some defensemen that have not even played a playoff game and to be thrown into this situation with it now a best of three series with the Stanley 
Stanley Cup on the line, it's going to get interesting for Boston. But we'll see if the Blues can take advantage of it. Now, the days of Zidane Ochara soaking up 30 minutes a game in the playoffs are done. He's playing mm-hmm. anywhere between, you know, 19 to 25 on any given night, depending on what's going on. He played 24, 25, and 19 and a half in the first three games in the Stanley Cup final. I'm also seeing that he's got a broken jaw, some people reporting. So that's not good for Boston. But that doesn't mean that they can, they're going to lose because they don't have Zidane Chara. No, it definitely doesn't because that's the one thing about Boston is they're extremely deep. I would say so that though that this is a concern because you have top like not your top two defensemen, but two defensemen that play steady minutes and one of your top defensemen out. No, he doesn't play the minutes he used to play, but the fact is he still plays against the top guys against St. Louis, and that's where you're going to miss him. I mean, you're going to usually put out Chara against the top players on St. Louis, and the other issue though for Boston right now is the fact that it's their production. Their second line has gone absolutely cold, and that's of Jake Depressed, David Krejci, and David Backus. I mean, Krejci hasn't scored a goal since the second round against Columbus in the Eastern Conference. So, I mean, they need more production from them. They need that secondary scoring to come back. They can't just rely on that top line led by Patrice Bergeron. So there's a few issues for Boston, I actually think, going on right now. Um, So, you know, and if the Blues manage to stay out of the box as they managed to do the other night and don't let that great Boston power play do its thing, Boston could be in trouble. doesn't mean they're going to lose, but this is not an ideal situation for them. Yeah, the power play last night didn't do anything. Obviously, in the 7-2 game, the power play was amazing. Last mm-hmm. night, Charlie Coyle and Brandon Carlo were the two goal scorers, and you got to give the Blues... They played their fourth line almost 20 minutes, shutting down the top perfection line and did an admirable job doing so. They did. And on top of that, you know, you saw their stars also play really well, too. And that's the key to winning a cup, right, is we talk about cups being won on your third and fourth lines because they have to go out there. And if they're not producing, then how are they helping? They're helping defensively, as you just mentioned. They're helping shut down top players. And that allows then for your stars to shine. So you see someone like Ryan O'Reilly not only scoring the game winner but having a two-point game. He's so strong in the face-off circle. He's almost a mirror of Patrice Bergeron, really, except I think, you know, at this point because he has a little bit of youth on him Um, you know I think he's a stronger player than Bergeron at this point but the Blues really came out and just put up a great effort it was a great you know I hate the term bounce back but in the Stanley Cup playoffs to come back from such a stinker at home in your first Stanley Cup playoff game ever at home you know it was a really amazing effort in my opinion and we'll see though now as they go back to Boston if they can carry the momentum because I know how much you like statistics about these pivotal games (laughs) and when a series is tied to too going into that game five the winner of that wins the series over 70 percent of the time so uh it's a it's a massive game it's probably the deciding factor we'd say a couple other statistics the blues are much better on the road than they are at home this postseason i've also got these two nuggets the blues six and oh when they score in the first two minutes of a game this postseason which they've, they've done which they did a yes. ton. and they're also four and oh in the playoffs when they allow a shorthanded goal which is just inexplicable <laughs> Yes, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I guess they must feed off of that and try to switch the momentum. But that's interesting. So you said before the series that the Blues were your pick. Yeah. It's 2-2, two mm-hmm. last three games in Boston. Do you still feel like St. Louis is going to win the Stanley Cup? 
I do. I really do. And again, I go back to the fact that this is what the Blues do. I mean, the injuries are starting to mount up for the Boston Bruins, who are a tough hockey club that are built very well, that have that ability to win cups because they've been there, done that. But the Blues are just such a heavy team. They've done this in every series where they take a few guys out and they take away some key players. And then they start, you know, they have the talent up front to score goals. And I just... The other thing, and I've said this before, and I know it sounds cheesy to some people, but I believe they have this will to win. I believe that they are playing as a group. I believe that they really enjoy playing together. And I also think a lot of this has to do with Craig Rube. Now, when he came in and St. Louis started doing what they were doing, I didn't give him too much credit because I said, listen, they're playing the same systems they were under Mike Yo. But where I will give him all the credit in the world is that he has tapped into the heart of this team, into the pulse of this team, and he has brought them together where there was a lot of it seemed to be individual pieces in St. Louis because we were expecting them to be this team this season. They had a strong offseason. They made the trade for O'Reilly. They were ready to go on all cylinders, and then they just came out and were horrible. But I really feel that, you know, Chief, as they call him, I think these guys are playing for him. I think they're playing for each other, and I think they're going to win a Stanley Cup for the first time in franchise history. This past weekend in Morden, longtime umpire Bob Senf inducted into the Manitoba Baseball Hall of Fame. Bob spent a lot of his three-decade umpiring career in the Manitoba Senior Baseball League, but also worked a variety of levels of baseball and softball before retiring in 2010. Bob joins us now on the CJOB Sports Show. Congratulations, Bob. Uh, now take me back. When did your softball career begin? Well, I started playing softball back in the 1960s in Winnipeg. You know, once I had a car and I could travel around, uh, it was a 59 Volkswagen, Volkswagen Bug. And I played for um, a softball team in Winnipeg um, way back then. Oh, goodness gracious. And and then, of course, uh, that Volkswagen Bug took me through university uh, to uh, Verdun, where I started a teaching career with my family. The family was just beginning and everything else. And that was uh, 1970. I started teaching high school English at Verdon Collegiate. And when did you make the transition to umpiring? Uh, in, in 1980, you know, about that point in time, a lot of the guys that I'd played ball with, and I'd played a couple of years of uh, actual baseball with uh, the Verdon Oilers, but um, um, in 1980, guys that I'd been playing with had hung up the gloves and everything else. And and it was really kind of cool because uh, then I said, oh, I can do that too, because our family was growing at that point in time. So that's uh, kind of when it happened. The manager of uh, the uh, Scarth fastball team, Jim Wright, asked me uh, in 1980, he said, you're not going to play. Would you consider umpiring for us? And I said, sure. And shortly thereafter, um, the Manitoba Baseball League, uh, Verdon Oilers, uh, Perry Kalanick said, Bob, we hear you're uh, umpiring for Scarth. Could you umpire for us too? And that was the start. What was the biggest learning curve about umpiring? The rules and regulations. I, I, I started umpiring, obviously, in both fastball and baseball they were very much similar but you know when you think about the the two different games that was a pretty significant curve but um, 
once I got into doing uh, or going to clinics for baseball, only because fastball was kind of dying out for us guys, uh, you know, then then there were a lot of a lot of rules and regulations and and all that kind of stuff. So early in the 80s, uh, you know, as I went to clinics, it was really kind of cool because we would learn all kinds of technology and all that kind of stuff. I'll backtrack a little tiny bit because as a kid, I never played minor ball. And so bottom line was, as I got to watch baseball on TV, black and white, small screen TV, the old uh, iconic test pattern, um, watching the Yankees with uh, Maris Mantle, Yogi, Whitey Ford, and all that kind of thing, and, and beginning to learn the strategy of baseball from Pee Wee Reese and Dizzy Dean and all that kind of stuff, uh, that, would, that was where I got started. Any big arguments that stand out over the years that you've had with either coaches <laughs> or players? Uh, uh, very few. I, I'm, I'm going to share that with you. I, you know, 30 years, um, probably close to 2,100 ball games. You know, uh, no, I didn't have a lot of problems with people. And uh, the bottom line was, I wasn't there for them. They, you know. Uh, I was I was going to be a, a player's umpire, and um, unless there was a problem, I wasn't going to be dealing with that one. My best question was, you know, if a guy challenged a call and whatever and got a little bit animated about this thing, um, without being super loud, do you want to say that again? <laughs> and that was his his choice. Um, if he, you know, did it again, nice and loud, you know, he would be gone. And most, most often they didn't, you know, so they would stay in the game. But you have had to eject people, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. But not very often. Did you ever ump any of your kids? Oh, yes. Many. All of them, basically. Uh, and actually, uh, the highlight, my oldest son, um, Joey, Ultimately played with, uh, you know, uh, Legion 141 in the Red Boyne League uh, for a number of years, among other leagues. Uh, Danny, our younger son, played with Nipua Farmers in the Manitoba Senior Baseball League for, you know, a number of years. And as the two leagues dwindled down to the point where they were sort of at about four teams apiece kind of thing, and they played against each other in an inter- in interlocking play. And uh, so the two boys played against each other at uh, a senior AAA level. And uh, uh, I was thrilled, uh, you know, to be the, ump- the, the plate umpire, you know, in those games. No conflict of interest there? Not at all. Not at all. I- I- I'll take you back. When the boys were growing up and so forth, you know, at home, and we'd be sitting at the dinner table, uh, you know, when they both played with the uh, Verdon Oilers, when it was still in the league and at Manitoba Senior Baseball League, the number one question was, Dad, who's behind the plate? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I share this one with you. For me, it wasn't a matter of uh, uh, this one or that one or whatever. It was a matter of fairness. I'm going to call this straight. I knew that there were a number of umpires, you know, all, all over Manitoba, all over baseball, if you like you know, that had likes and dislikes and everything else, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, no, uh, I'm going to call it fair. 
And so here, here was the principle. I'm not going to cheat my kids, but I'm not going to cheat the other team. That was the idea of being an umpire, being fair. My kids, you know, whether they're playing against each other or anybody else, they can't cheat the other team and the other team can't cheat them. Simple as that. Do you miss the umping at all? You know what? I did 30 years, 30 full years, Manitoba Senior Baseball League and everything else, two years of the Prairie uh, Prairie League of Professional Baseball, uh, you know, and and a whole lot of double A, a whole lot of midget, you know, junior, um, bantam, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I loved it, totally loved it for all those years, absolutely for all those years. But when the time came for me to step aside, you know, I was um, getting pretty old. Uh, I'd had a wonderful career. Um, it was stressful the last couple of years, not because of me or my age or whatever, just, just stressful years in the Manitoba Senior Baseball League. And I was very glad to step aside. And like a lot of things, when I step aside, um, I just step aside and I will answer questions from somebody, but I'm not going to get into stirring the pot, you know, manipulating what happens or doesn't happen or whatever. I mean, it's a whole new generation, right? And that's the way I went. Well, Bob, congratulations on the honor. And I understand you and your wife are celebrating a 50th wedding anniversary coming up. Yes, we are. She was my absolutely best supporter all that kind of time. And my kids all five of my kids who played really significant ball were great supporters. And that's, I, to, to me, that's really precious. Again, congratulations, Bob, and thanks for taking time to talk to Thank me tonight. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. The final Manitoba High School Provincial Championship starts Thursday, runs through Saturday at the U of M. Roughly 1,200 high school athletes will be competing in the Provincial Track and Field Championships representing 149 schools in 70 different events. Today at the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, members and coaches from three schools are on hand to preview the event from Fort Richmond, Kelvin, and Sisler. Let's start with Fort Richmond and Coach Ben Hodges, who's been coaching the track and field team there for six years. One of my favorite things is seeing uh, a level of growth in athletic development from kids. I, I meet them at the very start of the year when they're in grade 10, and I get to know them through school and all their extracurricular activities but it's it's a matter of you kind of the very first day of practice you see them and what they're capable of doing and then you get some time to work with them and you get a relationship with them and you see them every day you have fun you laugh you you know you go through good results you go through bad results and then you get to a place like provincials and you see where all pays off they work their butts off it's all about consistency and their training and what they can really do after a little bit of practice and hard work and that's for me as a coach I love watching that. So the difference between coaching track and field and say something like basketball is that there are just so many different disciplines to focus on right? Yeah absolutely it's well, it's a human performance sport it's strength it's 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 strength it's power it's speed it's coordination uh, it's flexibility and mobility it takes all of those things and I think a lot of sometimes stereotypically in those big sports like basketball volleyball it's it's all about secret plays and defense and certain skills how to you know be able to do a layup or or spike a volleyball but this is all about 
you're consistently training. You have to work on these specific exercises and try and move your body in the best possible way so that you can maximize your performance. And track has always been one of those sports that's supplementary to those major sports like basketball, volleyball. And actually a lot of sports like, like those basketball programs, they actually tell their athletes to come and do track because it's so helpful for them. And that's where I come in and it, it's, it's been working for us. So how many of your track team, track and field team, play different sports? Pretty much all of them? Pretty much all of them. There is a couple that uh, they do try out for those sports, but they aren't skilled enough that they don't make the cut. And they, they go to tryouts, but they don't make the team. So a lot of them will come turn to track as a way to improve their skills and then so that they can use it to try out for the following year. Um, I have lots of athletes who are able to balance both. Um, I have some athletes who do just the outdoor season and not the indoor season um, as a kind of a way to be, continue to be active throughout the year. So it's a lo- most of our school is multi-sport athletes. I have to ask, did you run track in high school? I did, yes. I come from small town Hamiota, Manitoba, uh, and I did the 100, 200, and long jump. And how did you do? Uh, not nearly as good as my athletes here now. It's amazing the talent pool you get when you come to a 4A school in Winnipeg. And plus, culturally, lots of, from lots of different countries. I'm just a Manitoba boy, and I, man, I, I would be whooped by my team right now. <laughs> well, good luck this weekend. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And runner Nathania Ebebere is excited but nervous about this weekend, running in the 100-meter, 200-meter, and relay. Well, I've been running for years now, like since grade two-ish. Yeah. What, what do you like about it? Well, I just like how when you start running on the track, you kind of forget most things and you're kind of like focused on what's happening. How is it to be fast? Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure, but it seems like, I don't know, it's kind of like an adrenaline that happens and everything just kicks in at once, so it's kind of nice. What grade are you in? 12. And so this is your last provincials. How do you feel going into it? I mean... I've never been nervous to go into provincials, but being my last year and like, there's a lot of things that I want to achieve since it's my last year, yeah. So you put some pressure on yourself to succeed, right? Yes. How have you done previously? Uh, Previously, it's been good. Like we won like gold last year in the relays and yeah. So we've been doing really good, but this year I feel like a lot of things have been kind of iffy. 100 meters, 200 meters, and relay. What's your favorite of the three? Relays. Why? Well, you're working with a team, and it's not just like your strength. You're working with like other people's strengths too. So how does it feel when you're watching other people succeed around you? Well, it feels great because then you can encourage others, and you can also learn from them. So it's a win-win. Okay. Well, good luck this weekend. Thank you. Okay. Kelvin, coach. Tim Shinkarik is in his 13th season as coach, and he loves what he does. Awesome kids, uh, great to work with, really dedicated and committed. Seeing them kind of grow from when they join the team to when they're they're finished, is that rewarding? Absolutely. The best part about coaching is uh, I always go back to the picture of Donovan Bailey when he won the 100 meters, and his face is just pure joy, and I get to see that on a regular basis. It's amazing. So track and field is an individual sport but at the same time there is a lot of teamwork involved not just in relays but in terms of the training I imagine there's a lot of behind the scenes people pushing each other absolutely it's uh, it's one of the great aspects of track and field is that during training 
right? Everybody's working together, pushing each other to get faster and, and better in their events. And you don't have to compete with your teammates for court time, right? In a, a team events, you're competing with your teammates to get on the court. In track, you train for the event, you get to do it. How has Kelvin done in your time at Provincials? Uh, we have won at least one Provincial banner every year I've been there. So that must make you feel proud. I'm very proud of the kids, yeah. What are your uh, fortes, I guess, going into this Provincial Championship? Um, strongest groups are probably the two varsity, the boys and the girls. Uh, JVs will be in it, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. Well, good luck. Thank you. And Kelvin runner Colin Harbeck, a grade 12 student who runs in the 200 and 400 meter events, hoping for a strong finish to his career. Um, I've done pretty well. I've placed in the finals, I think for the past three years, both in 200 and 400. So that's been pretty good. Um, I hit the podium grade 10 for the 400 meter, but other than that, I haven't been on the podium since grade 10. But um, yeah, I think I've been doing pretty successful, getting finals and all that. Why did you decide to do track? Track? Well, see, I started track in grade four, but why did I decide to do it? It started with, um, I probably like most other kids, I did a lot of other sports, and obviously track is the kind of thing that, it helps everything, right? To be fast at something just helps. And uh, over time I grew uh, to like the sport more and more, so I decided to make it my main sport, and now to this day it's the only sport I do, so uh, I guess that's the reason why, you know? Just started as a, a, like a way to get better, and now it's something I love. I love to do, it's a passion, so that's why I do it. Explain the difference for your training perspective and how you attack a race 200 to 400. So my training perspective, for training I do a lot of uh, anaerobic, uh, short set, kind of like uh, high pace, short recovery to train my lactic acid. So it'll be you know a really fast 200 with really short rest, say like 60 seconds to 90 seconds, and you attack again, you attack again until your, your legs are dead. And what this really does in the race, it, uh, it builds like lactic resistance. So it should help uh, towards the end of a 400, end of a 200, I should have more to give than everyone else. And uh, as far as like race mentality goes, you really just gotta think positive. You gotta think like, you gotta trust in your training. You gotta think you're everything, you know? You gotta go in there acting like you wanna win to really get a good race, get a PB. And that's just how it is. Because 200 is still basically a sprint. Exactly, yeah. It's 100% a sprint. There's no pacing in a 200, rather to a four, where a four is a very fast race. It's the longest sprint you can do, right? So there is a little bit of pacing involved in there, but if it's a 200, it's all out. You just, you leave nothing behind, right? You just go for it. All right, well, good luck this weekend. Thank you. Sisler coach Wayne Larveld has been at it for eight years. Favorite thing about track is we have all our practices in the mornings. We go uh, four mornings a week, and uh, to work with a bunch of students that get to school about quarter after seven every morning and are willing to work hard and, uh, and dedicate themselves. Uh, the, nice, the other nice thing about track is even though many of the events are individual events, uh, there is also definitely a team feel to the sport. Uh, where points acquired can help an individual category and the overall category so the kids really do cheer for each other and, and often we'll have students that show up on the Saturday that aren't even competing they're just there to cheer for their friends and also to cheer that the school has a chance to try to win a banner. So you got the Provincials here in June when does the real push start for training? Uh, well, we go, our indoor season, we start right around Remembrance Day in November with indoor, uh, but the push for outdoor, we start right after spring break, usually early April, uh, with lots of training through April, and then the track meets all tend to happen right around the middle of May. 
and, and then they come fast and furious through May and then there's usually a week or two to recover and then get real specific with the students who qualified for provincials to work on the specifics for those individuals. I imagine a lot of the people you have on your team play other sports. Yeah, we do. We, uh, we have a lot of students that are playing basketball and football and soccer and, and all other sports, yes. How much does track then kind of help supplement those kind of sports? It's a conversation we have with our athletes all the time, right? Like there's not many sports where being able to run faster, run longer, or jump further or higher uh, doesn't help. So uh, we, we certainly do have a lot of students who, who come to track and they, and they do that to supplement their sports. Uh, we do have some that are primarily track athletes and dabble in other sports. We have a, I think we have a nice mix. What's maybe the forte of your team? Well, certainly our varsity boys hurdlers. Uh, last year they, they swept the podium and, uh, and two out of those three are back. So there's probably an outside shot that they may be able to do that again. They're certainly hoping to. Um, we have some strong jumpers as well. And I think our 4 by one relays will be pretty strong also. How have you done in the past? With the 4 by ones we've had... Uh, Four by one's kind of a all or nothing thing. We've had some teams that have won and then some teams that have run out of the exchange zone and, be de and uh, defaulted that we're hoping to win. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, we've had some triple jumpers win. We have a couple that will have a chance to do really well this weekend. Yeah. How did uh, you do in your track career? Did you have one? I did have a track career. I, I was mostly a hockey rugby player. Um, I dabbled in uh, middle distance through junior high, but... Uh, I was, I attended practices and I tried real hard. <laughs> Let's leave it there, all right? Yeah. Well, good luck. Thank you. And finally, grade 11 student at Sisler, Alea San Miguel, competes in hurdles, triple jump, and long jump. What would you say your best one is? It's between hurdles and triple jump, for sure, yeah. So why do you, when did you start doing these? In grade 8, that's when I started doing hurdles, but before that I actually ran distance races. So why did you make the switch? Because I ran the hurdle race and it, I found out that it was like what I was better at besides the distance races. Was there ever any fear the first time you ran it of tripping over the hurdles? At first, but then I grew over it, yeah. So obviously you're a good jumper because you do jumps and you're jumping over hurdles. How, how do you train to make sure that you're a good jumper? Well, I do go to the gym. And also the practices help a lot because the coaches are really good at coaching the jumping practices. Play other sports? No, not anymore. Okay. What did you play? Volleyball. Okay. So that's another sport where jumping is important. Yeah. So when did you make the switch to just focus on track? When high school started because I didn't really try out for the other teams. So how do you feel going into provincials? Nervous but also ready at the same time. Yeah. Is it kind of like a full year of training leading up to this? How, when do you start like really focusing on provincials? A year or two before probs comes. Or not a year, a month. <laughs> yeah. So how do you feel your chances are? Um, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, good luck this weekend. Thank you. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mel. Or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck. But Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?